Welcome to the Well Woman Show, where we use intersectional feminism, mindfulness, leadership, and strategy to support smart women to change the world without anxiety, insecurity, and burnout. So for me, feminism is sort of the lens because if we're not attacking the patriarchy, how are we going to dismantle racism? Because class and sexism obviously are part of racism. On the show, we challenge the status quo and support you to unlearn harmful messages that keep you playing small so you can activate your superpowers and live with joy, confidence, and ease. I'm your host, Giovanna Rossi. On the Well Woman Show this week, I talked to Val De Sanchez, a professor of communication, social activist, TEDx speaker, and intersectional feminist. Dedicated to education, she believes it has the power to combat social justice issues that plague our society. Val is the host of So What Are You?, a podcast dedicated to amplifying voices that are often marginalized. Val facilitates equity and justice workshops across the country to help professionals and organizations embrace inclusive practices. Today, we'll talk about how her work in racism has changed recently, that anti-racism and intersectional feminism work is imperative regardless of your race or lifestyle, and how we can make our schools more anti-racist. I want to let you know about a special series on The Well Woman Show that showcases conversations with Black, Indigenous, and women of color. And together we explore anti-racism and racial justice, what it means not only in the big picture, but how our daily lives are impacted, what we're reading, what we're doing, and where we go from here. This special series on anti-racism is part of the Podcasters for Justice campaign. You can find all of those past episodes as well as upcoming special series episodes right here on The Well Woman Show. You can find notes from today's show, links to past episodes of The Well Woman Show featuring Black, Indigenous, and women of color, as well as a list of anti-racism resources at wellwomanlife.com slash 214show. You can also continue the conversation in the Well Woman Life community group at wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from the Well Woman Academy and High Desert Yoga in Albuquerque. I'm speaking with Val De Sanchez. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Um, I want to start by having you tell listeners, who are you in the world today? Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm Valde Sanchez. I'm a queer Black woman um, educator who teaches at a community college. I'm also a rising 2L law student and a podcast host, a blogger, and an author, and a wife and a mom. (laughs) So many roles, right? So many (laughs) So many identities, and um, how how are you uh, how are you like living into all of those identities and like honoring all of them? Like I, I don't I don't want to use the word balance because I think that's like a <laughs> an elusive you know term that like we never really achieve balance, but how do you live into all of those roles in your life? I think it was kind of complicated at first because some of those identities I can hide. And in this moment, I think with Black Lives Matter, they're really the only time that I identify, I'm a non-binary person. So the only time I really identify as a woman, if the word Black is in front of it, because I think my ancestry of being, you know, Black women are very powerful, they're very resilient, they're very strong, and they're also very vulnerable. And so 
for me, I think that identity specifically impacts the way that I raise my kids, the way that I interact with the world in general. And it also impacts my writing and the work that I do in terms of education and trying to create an inclusive classroom and an anti-racist classroom. Mm. Okay. So I met you. Yeah. I have my company, The Only Black Girl in the Room, and I do diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings. And I've been doing that for the past two years. But obviously, before that, I was doing that kind of work in my own classroom and just doing the research when I was pursuing my master's degree. But there's been this sort of, if I would talk about racism at a training or in class, I was really careful not to use the word white. I was really careful to use terms like equity and inclusion um, rather than anti-racism. If I were to try and put out a workshop that was titled anti-racism, you know, six months ago, it really would have been, you know, no one would have come. You know, I think in America, we were really feeling like we were in a post-racial society. We felt like we were colorblind and multicultural and we were very diverse. And people sort of thought that racism was um, an antiquated term. And there was this very strong definition of racism, I think, in people's consciousness that was very um, explicit, you know, um, like the KKK, well, that's racism, but microaggressions and things like that, well, that's just prejudice. That's maybe a little bit of discrimination. People are sort of afraid of the word race, racism, uh, racist. And now I think because people have been home due to the pandemic and they're seeing, you know, they can't really look away from what's happening in terms of the protest, in terms of police brutality, there has been this real uptick in this movement right now. And I know Black Lives Matter has been around a long time, but now we're seeing um, that people can't really look away. So there's kind of this perfect storm of things happening that has put anti-racism work at the forefront. So before I was really begging participants to come and I'd get maybe like 30 participants at a workshop and the workshop that you attended had over, you know, 150 people there. It's kind of a mixed bag for me because part of it is, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that people are joining the conversation and getting involved. But it's also a little bit of like, well, where were you before? Because I think people with the marginalized identities have been having these conversations for a very long time and don't really have the privilege to not have those conversations. Yeah, that's such a good point. How do you think this is going to impact your work and and who you are moving forward? I think it's allowed me to be a lot more free. You know, it's allowed me to really just start the conversation, which is usually something that is only reserved for people that are in my community. You know, we talk about when I'm in a room full of Black people and I'm presenting my findings and things like that to a room full of Black people, there's already the assumption that racism exists. Um, I don't have to back it up with like, well, the thing about racism is I don't have to give examples. I can just start the conversation. And I think now just the way that I even conduct my trainings, being able to label them as anti-racism trainings and just, just start the conversation as opposed to having to convince the room that racism exists, that privilege exists. So, you know, it's allowed me to just be a little bit more of myself instead of having to kind of police the words that I use and police the way that I present. I can just really fully be my, my authentic self and start the conversation. You identify in your, in your bio as a an intersectional feminist. And so I want to talk a little bit about how those intersections, how how they're intersecting. And, you know, certainly on this show, we talk about feminism and intersectional feminism. And I'm finding it pretty exciting that we're looking at 
uh, that it's a little bit more mainstream, kind of what you were just saying, like, it's Mm -hmm. just, it's more acceptable now to actually go in and dig into some of these really difficult topics. And so how do you bring in feminism into your work? Yeah, I think for me, feminism is sort of the lens that I use to have these conversations. I always say, if you're not looking at trans women of color, if you're not looking at Black trans women, if your empathy doesn't extend to that group, then you know you're not doing enough. Your compassion doesn't extend to that group because I think a lot of us sort of get stuck in our comfort zones and we think, um, I can't really understand racism, but I can understand feminism. Uh, Or I can't understand racism, but I can understand sexism. And we don't really think about homophobia and transphobia. So for me, um, when I do these trainings, I don't want to just... As important as Black lives are, I always want to say, well, all Black lives, you know, it's Black lives who are living um, with disabilities, it's Black lives who are queer, it's Black lives um, who are incarcerated, it's Black lives with mental illness. So, So for me, it's really looking at feminism in terms of we're trying to make sure that everyone is heard and that everyone is seen and that we're meeting people where they are as opposed to just equality and saying, we'll just give everybody the same thing. So for me, feminism is sort of the lens, because if we're not attacking the patriarchy, how are we going to dismantle racism? Because class and sexism obviously are part of racism. So we don't hear that very much right now. And is that on purpose? So as not to dilute, you know, and and draw away from the conversation about white supremacy, about anti-racism? For me, I think of like Malcolm X, I think of Asada Shakur, and they were always speaking of these elements altogether. You know, uh, there wasn't the separation. However, I do think that consultants and trainers like me do feel like we don't want to um, exhaust people. I think we kind of feel like we have to kind of gradually get there. And I think that's sort of the shift that we're seeing because Black Lives Matter, when you look at like Patrice Conkoyers, who was one of the founders of the movement, was very much influenced by her brother's experience of being a Black man who was also diagnosed with schizophrenia and how he since the age of nine was being pulled over by police because he was a tall black kid in Los Angeles. So she was very much, and she identifies as queer. So she was very much um, trying to make this a holistic movement. But I think just calling it Black Lives Matter, people had a perception of what constitutes black life. And I think people see black people as sort of a monolith and they see them as very, like see us very one dimensionally. So even though the movement was supposed to be very inclusive and originally started that way, I think people's perceptions of it is what has caused this sort of, oh, we're only talking about this very specific group when really it was meant to be quite holistic and inclusive. Yeah. And and if, if we look at the history of white feminism, it has been fraught with a lot of problems with racism. And <laughs> yeah. uh, and, I, and I think it's important to sort of name that and talk through that and, and educate you know, people in the feminist space about that? Yeah, I think it's really easy for people to say, I stand with women. And when they say that, what they mean is white women. And I don't think they look at, and even when they look at white women, they look at cisgender, neurotypical, able-bodied white women. They're not necessarily, you know, if we look at protests, a lot of times the questions about, well, is this wheelchair accessible doesn't come up. It's just sort of like, hey, show up and let's march. And even the term march, it's like, well, what if we all can't do that? So I think people latch on to what they see as themselves. And I even if you have a movement that's supposed to be inclusive, people tend to have their own implicit bias of who's included and who are we fighting for. And it's easier 
to be compassionate about people that look like you. Yeah, white feminism is definitely something that we kind of come up against. And if we call ourselves feminist, a lot of times they're not thinking of us. You know, they're not thinking of Black women. They're not thinking of queer women. They're not thinking of trans women. You know, they're only thinking of a very limited view of what a woman is and who needs to be protected. Yes, so so much more work to do there. And Val, I want to turn our attention to children and education. How do you see the role of educators right now, and and particularly policymakers who have some authority over how the system is working? What can they do to start working on anti-racism and not not just talk about we we're fair to all the children and, and that kind of <laughs> language, but like how do we really dig deep and hold our administrators and principals and the system accountable? I think the first thing is you have to have more diverse faculty. You have to have black teachers teaching and not necessarily only black students, but there's so many times where I would walk into a classroom and students would just assume I wasn't the instructor because I'm black, you know, or I'd need to have a classroom unlocked and the janitor would say, well, where's the teacher? And I'm like, I'm the one that called you. Like, okay, but where's your professor? You know, so a lot of times just being questioned, having to show my identification, having to convince students that no, I in fact, you know, I would even walk up into the front of the classroom and start logging into the computer and students would still assume, well, wow, what a bold student to just check their email on the teacher's computer. <laughs> and, you know, and they're still looking at the door, like waiting for the professor to come in. So, you know, those implicit biases are very real. And I think a lot of it was uh, most of the time, I'm the only black instructor in the department. If students aren't, if their identity, if their idea of what a professor looks like is an older white, you know, cisgender dude who's wearing a tweed jacket, you know, if that's the only people that we're hiring, then that's all students assume their instructor can look like. And that's also shows black students that they can't be a professor. Um, And it shows them what they can, you know, I can't ever be at that status because I've never seen it before. And I mean, I'm working on my third degree and I still haven't had a Black instructor. And that goes all the way to secondary school, primary school. So I think the first thing is getting more faculty of color, getting more administrators of color is a first step. And the other part is once you have them there, actually showing them support and allowing them to be promoted and giving them opportunities to do professional development outside of, you know, their state and things like that. And also looking, a big thing for me in terms of policy is looking at why do we have certain policies? And when we have policies that are just prejudicial to students living in poverty, students of color, like, you know, a big thing for me is why do we count tardies? Why do we even take attendance? And I work at the college level. So if you have an adult who's missing class, I'm going to assume they have a good reason. They're paying tuition. So if they can't come to class, I'm not going to punish them for that. I'm going to try and work with them and say, hey, is something going on? Do you need an extended deadline? So a lot of policies that we have in education really only favor upper middle class white students. And in terms of policing students, how they speak, how they dress, how they walk, you know, um, how they even write emails. There's lots of instructors who won't even return a student's email if it's not written in quote unquote proper English. So forcing students to code switch, again, you're just kind of softly pushing students out of academia and education when you're saying coming to me as you are isn't good enough. And in fact, not only is it a sign of disrespect, but it goes against the student policy handbook. So policing, you know, students dress, things like that. We know that like the dress code for APS is like 30 pages long for girls and it's about a paragraph long for boys. 
So when you're doing that, you're basically saying the way that you present isn't acceptable here. And that, you know, of course, extends to students who identify with the LGBT community. Mm -hmm. So if you have a student who was assigned male at birth and they want to wear quote unquote girl clothes, a lot of times, you know, they're not supported by faculty. They might even be made fun of by faculty. And so that's taking away from education. Policy reform, looking at why do we have the policies that we have? Who does it affect? Is it disproportionately pushing? kids out. And also just things like looking at behavior. What do we consider as educators? What's misbehaving? Because we know that if um, a white male student is just not raising their hand, they're speaking, uh, they're interrupting the instructor, they're speaking loudly. The instructor labels them as ambitious, as a go-getter, as a born leader. But when we have Black girls doing the same thing in class, we often are labeled as disruptive, disrespectful. We're asked to leave class. We're suspended at higher rates that our male counterparts. So just looking at the implicit biases that instructors have and like, you know, it's very much culturally rooted and rooted in assimilation. It seems as though it's going to take so much more than sending people to a training, although that's a good start and your trainings are awesome. Um, And and for listeners, if all of this is interesting and you want to dig in deeper with Val de Sanchez, you can go to our website at wellwomanlife.com slash radio and we'll put links to her work in there. Val, we need to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I'm so thankful for support from High Desert Yoga, promoting optimum physical health, clarity of mind, and spiritual inspiration for all. You're invited to join me for a brand new monthly group experience over in the Well Woman Academy. This is a monthly group that includes access to the full six-week course based on feminism, mindfulness, and the Well Woman Life Framework. It includes weekly groups, coaching sessions with me, as well as office hours and a private Facebook group to share and grow. Don't get me wrong, this is hard work. But with these tools, you will easily find the time to do the course, get the coaching, and reach your goals monthly. If you find yourself worrying about whether you'll ever make it in the thing you're pursuing, waking up in the middle of the night with anxiety, lacking the energy you need to get everything done, stuck in some aspect of leading your team, procrastinating on moving forward with projects and tasks, or in a leadership role but second-guessing yourself constantly, I'd love to introduce you to the Well Woman Academy. It's for smart, high-achieving women changing the world who want to overcome anxiety, burnout, perfectionism, and insecurity. The result? You get to live your well woman life, a life of joy, ease, and abundance, even when things are tough all around you. Visit wellwomanlife.com slash academy to learn more. Okay, we're back with Val De Sanchez on the Well Woman Show, and we're headed into the segment called Superpowers for Success. Before we get started, I want to let you know that we do have a resource list available. Uh, It will be in the show notes, but you can find it at wellwomanlife.com slash anti-racism. And Val has agreed to add her recommendations and resources to that list as well. So Val, this is kind of a quick round of questions to get to know you as a leader, as a person, a little better. What does success in life mean for you? I think success in life to me means balance. I think women especially tend to try and do so many things and we don't care for ourselves. So for me, success isn't necessarily a dollar amount or even an achievement. It's more of, for me, once you get all the things that you want, how do you actually balance those things and feed your soul? Mm. 
such a good one. And balance, it, it's, it's always such a troubling idea for me that we will be able to balance things, you know, because mm-hmm. that, that assumes that like, yeah, we can do everything equally. And it's, it's just really hard to do that. And so that's a great goal to have to, to be able to balance <laughs> things. So when did you know you were really good at what you do? I've always knew I was going to do something in education. I knew I was going to teach. I mean, that was my favorite thing to play as a kid was school. And all of my dolls and stuffed animals had report cards and some of them had IEPs. Um, So I was very into school. And so I sort of knew that that was something I was going to do. And then when I became a professor, when I started challenging the way that school is taught, when I started bringing in authors of color and I started using open educational resources, that was when I think I really felt like, wow, you nailed it. Because just seeing my students' faces when I would say, we're going to read a particular author. And the author was, you know, someone who was identified as queer or someone who was Native American or Black. And you would see the students in the class who identified like that. And were just kind of like, I didn't even know that there was research done by those groups of people uh, that look like me. Or I didn't know I could read something like this in a college. You know, I didn't know that was allowed. So that was really when I think I felt like you, you've arrived as an educator. Val, can you describe a personal habit that you have that contributes to your well-being so you can do all of these things that you do in the world? Therapy. I love my therapist. (laughs) And I think that when you have an outside source who really has no stakes in what you're doing, it's really good to bounce ideas off of them because I tend to be that person who's like, you just keep working you work and you work and you can have a 14 hour work day and that's totally fine. And I knew once the pandemic hit that I really needed to go back to therapy because when you're home all day, it's very easy for me to fall into that tendency of just work, you know, just well, you have your laptop. So let's just get everything done. So my therapist, is always like, what are you doing? (laughs) How many things did you do today? So I'm a big proponent of therapy. I think therapy should be free for all black people in the United States because it's difficult, you know, to deal with working and with going to school, but then also racism is constantly there. Therapy for me is my personal habit that really just keeps me balanced and really keeps me in check. What superpower did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time? I think the biggest one was probably confidence. I always kind of, I was in the whole habit of fake it till you make it. And then when I stopped looking for outside validation, I started to realize you've been confident this whole time because look at the things that you've tried and look at the things that even if you failed at them, you did it. For me, I think when I released my memoir, The Only Black Girl in the Room, and just seeing um, people's responses to it was amazing. But the big thing for me was actually publishing it because it started out as just a journal and I never thought anyone else would read it, which is probably why it became so good because it's so uh, frank and candid. But I realized I had to have confidence to release it in the first place. So I think that's my superpower. So where do you think that confidence came from? I think it was letting go of expectations. And I had to just kind of stop comparing myself to other people because there's no one else that's, you know, doing what I'm doing or is me, obviously. So I couldn't compare myself to other folks. And I think the confidence came from letting go of the what ifs, you know, well, what if someone sees us and they think that or what if they, because as a writer, that will very much hinder your process and saying, you know, I don't really care. Uh, This is important for me and I need to just do it. And 
really understanding like what, who was important and what opinions mattered to me. Mm -hmm. And um, I realized that that list is probably about three people. So, and they're related to me. So then, then it was a lot easier to be confident. Okay. And what advice would you give your younger self, say 10 or 15 years ago? I would tell her to relax, to try and find joy and to not be so concerned with benchmarks in my life and to be more concerned with the present and to actually enjoy it. And I just wish that I would have slowed down and really appreciated and understood the significance of what I was doing. I tended to just kind of bounce from achievement to achievement and never slow down to go, wow, look what you did. That's amazing. I never had that moment. So I would tell my younger self, you know, live in those moments and really pat yourself on the back and take a moment to appreciate what you've accomplished because the odds were completely against you. And that whole culture of just achieving, achieving and and like the being a high achiever, I I so relate to that. And that's a lot of the well woman community really resonates with that too. Isn't that interesting? Because I've heard that be referenced also as core part of white supremacy. Yeah, that idea of like, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I think as a black person, it was always if you're just doing if you're doing more, if you're doing more, then you know, racism can't touch you. You know, if you get the house and you get the car and you live in the proper neighborhood, and you can send your kids to the right schools, you're safe. And I think finally getting to the point where I was a college professor and still being asked, you know, are you lost? Are you meant to be here? Where's your teacher? This is a staff dining room. You're not supposed to be in here. I think that really was what, and then also doing the research and showing, you know, civility didn't help, you know, Dr. King, you know, dressing, having protesters dress in their Sunday best during the civil rights movement didn't stop them from being sprayed with fire hoses. So it was sort of like, and then actually reading the research that it takes 20 years of nothing going wrong in your life to actually change your social status. It was like, okay, so I'm as an individual, I'm trying to take on this whole system of racism and thinking if I just change my behavior, it'll go away. And it's like, of course, an individual doesn't stand a chance to a system. Mm -hmm. Whole part of white supremacy is if you all would just work harder, you would get out of your situation. And we just know that's not true. For me, learning that and then actually living that and seeing, and then also the whole idea um, or just seeing police brutality, you know, as Black people, we tell our kids, this is what you have to do when you get pulled over by a police officer. But then seeing all of the cases where the Black person wasn't doing anything wrong, where they were doing all of the things that we're taught to do and they still didn't make it home. That was just another kind of glaring example of, see, it's not you. You know, it doesn't matter how many letters I have after my last name to a lot of people. I'm just this black girl who doesn't belong. So it didn't really matter how many accolades I had. It was racism is still going to be there. Discrimination is still going to be there. And um, it didn't really matter how much I had on my resume. So after that, it was a lot easier to let go of. It doesn't matter how much you achieve. You have to achieve what you want and not really be worried about this real broken society that's going to have their prejudice regardless. We talked about you identifying as an intersectional feminist. And and that is one of these questions in this segment is, do you identify as a feminist? Do you want to add anything 
to that? Yeah, I think the word feminist for me is kind of a touchy. It's, you know, I identify as intersectional feminist, but sometimes I steer away from it a little bit because I do think it has the potential to sort of end the conversation where people go, oh, I'm a feminist, I'm good. And I think you have to sort of dig in and ask people, well, what does that mean? A lot of times people are like, well, I'm a feminist. I think women should have these particular rights. But then when you want to bring up like transgender, you know, I think JK Rowling is a perfect example where she's like, I'm here for women, but that has a limit. And so, you know, when someone to me says I'm a feminist, I always kind of ask like, okay, but like, what is your stance on race? And a lot of times if someone comes back with, well, I don't think it's a racial issue. I think it's a class issue you know, whistles go off in my mind of like, what, you know, what is going on here? Feminist to me, that's why I always want to put intersectional in front of it. um, Because I don't, I think a lot of people who have marginalized identities might see the term feminist and think, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me. They're only standing up for, you know, cis white women. Absolutely. Okay. And last question, what are you reading right now? What's on your nightstand? I am reading um, a couple of things. One of them is Medical Apartheid. Um, that talks about the history of African-Americans being used for experimentation uh, in the medical field and how that is something that started during slavery but continues today, which is something that I have my own personal experience with. And then the other book that I'm reading is Killing the Black Body, um, Race, Reproduction, the Meaning of Liberty. And both of those books are probably pretty heavy. I'm also reading a graphic novel with my son, um, Amulet, which is really cute. So I'm trying okay. to balance the heavy there's reading. The ba- <laughs> yeah, there's the balance, right? Yeah. Okay, Val, it's been great having you on the show. For listeners who want to connect with Val and uh, link to her her memoir and her trainings, you can head over to wellwomanlife.com slash radio and we'll put the links in there. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was so fun. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your well woman life, head over to wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook to join our community. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week. So be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts and search for The Well Woman Show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.